This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Imagine a future. And our imaginings horrify us. They won't fear it. Until they understand it. And they won't understand it. until they've used it. Theory will take you only so far. I don't know if we can be trusted with such a weapon. But we have no choice. Episode 376 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking. From studio films, high-end TV, documentaries, and everything in between. And you missed indie film, but oh, keep yeah. going. In- indie film, yeah. <laughs> I never do this bit. <laughs> I know, this is fun. How to make them... <gasps> Close. How, uh, Tom? Oh, fuck, what is it? Uh, How many episodes have you done? I know, but I never do this bit. <sighs> How to make them, how to something, how to royally not F them up. That, that'll do. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> how to make how them, to how make to get them, them made, yeah. and how to royally, no. <laughs> how to royally F up the intro. Well done, Dom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are, we, are we using this? 
<laughs> Definitely. Uh, you are Dom Lenoir, and who am I? You're, you're Giles Alderson. I am indeed. Welcome to the Filmmakers Podcast. It's not usually this messy, but we are today talking about Oppenheimer. Or Oppodheimer, for anyone that missed the pun or hasn't had the pun yet. No. No, I'm sure they did. Uh, it, <laughs> it, we are delighted to have on the team behind Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. We have Jamie Lee McIntosh, uh, who did all the hair on uh, Oppenheimer, and Louise Abel, who did the makeup and prosthetics. We also have Jennifer Lane, the editor, as well as Ellen Mirojnik, the costume designer. These are all heads of department on major, major movies. Not just Oppenheimer, but they've worked with Christopher Nolan relentlessly. It was an absolute delight to sit down with them, wasn't it, Dom? Oh, what a treat. What a treat. It really was. A massive thank you to Tolly Shields for sorting this out for us. Um, she is a wonderful wife of Mark Shields, filmmaker. Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well. Indeed. Uh, and uh, reached out and said, hey, would you be interested in speaking to the Oppenheimer girls? And we, of course, went, of course we want to chat to them. They're amazing. And what a treat it was. It's doing incredibly well, Oppenheimer, on the awards season. Uh, I mean, so far we've got the Golden Globes, where it has already won five awards, including Best Drama, Best Actor for Killian Murphy, Best Score for Ludwig Göransson, and Best Supporting Actor for Robert Downey Jr. And it's got a hell of a lot of BAFTA nominations as well. And all four of our fantastic guests from today are nominated as well. What did we go into details about, Tom? Well, we, we, we can you had, remember it was last year. Yeah, no, we we had a very <laughs> there was a mixture of first time Nolan collaborators and HODs that had worked with Christopher on multiple projects. So it was really exciting to see what it was like going in and pitching for a first time working with Christopher Nolan versus working on some of the outrageous classics like Inter Interstellar, Inception, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and mm -hmm. and just what his process is, how he prepares, how he likes his heads of departments to prepare. I mean, it was just such an in-depth in discussion um, and we really got to hear out how they think as well as how he thinks. Absolutely right. Dom's right. This is a treat for you. It's a treat for us to chat to them anyway. But just in general, the knowledge and, and skill and thought process, and, and they were all amazing as well. They were just fantastic guests. That Each of these, we could potentially do this separate. They were that good. It's a bit of a long one, but it is amazing. You are going to love it. We should just get to it because it's a long one. And who do you think we should go with first, Tom? Should we go editor, costume designer, or, and they were together, Jamie uh, Lee McIntosh and Louisa Abel on the makeup and hair department. What do you think? Let's do it in chronological order because we're really fun. That's who we did the interviews of. That was fun because that was the order we did it in, which was Jamie Lee McIntosh uh, and Louisa Abel. They were first. They sat down with us first. But I believe it was Louisa's first ever podcast that she'd done. Imagine, imagine having your first podcast with us. <laughs> Read that for, for better or for worse. <laughs> yes, imagine that. So, Jamie Lee McIntosh, some of her credits as a hairstylist include 
There's so many. It's crazy. We'll be reading credits for, for days and years to come. King Kong, Lovely Bones, Avatar, The Hobbit, Unexpected Journey. She did all the Hobbit movies. Underworld, Pirates of the Caribbean, Black Panther. Oh, Underworld. That's, that, is, that is a classic. That's a, that's a rare gem, Underworld. Like, underrated, right? kind of, kind of genre-y, but actually really fun and, and actually pretty well done as well. Yes, absolutely. Then she's been Hair Department Head on Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, Captain Marvel, um, Ad Astra, Bombshell, Don't Worry Darling, Blonde, Babylon, Next Girl Wins, and now Oppenheimer. I mean, you don't get much more experience than this. So that Lee McIntosh, Hair Department, and joining her is Louisa Abel. Now, let's read out some of her credits as well. She has worked on, oh my God, this list is crazy. This is crazy. The stuff just with she did Shooting Fish was one of her first films, which is this fantastic British movie uh, directed by Stefan Schwartz. Um, she also did. She also worked on Hollow Man, Catch Me If You Can, American Splendor, Twenty One Grams. <laughs> This domino. Ooh, classic. Hollywoodland, Spider-Man 3, Charlie Wilson's War, Drag Me to Hell, Inception, Thor, um, Dark Knight Rises, Don Juan, Transcendence, Interstellar, American Sniper. Not to be confused with Don Juan. Trumbo, Sully, Dunkirk. Dunkirk. <laughs> Knives Out, Gemini Man, Tenet, Red Notice, Air, and Oppenheimer. It, it, again, we, it, this is just unbelievable experience and they're giving you knowledge right now let's get to it this is myself and dom chatting with jamie lee mcintosh and louisa abel all about oppenheimer and everything else enjoy Hello. hello hello good morning good morning Hi. how are you doing okay so if you grab that just hold that round in somewhere there that'd be perfect yeah, just relax. Like we're just friends having a chat. That's what yeah. we are. <laughs> How are you? You okay? Yeah. 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 Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see you, Jamie Lee. How are you? Fabulous. Fabulous. <laughs> Welcome to the Oppodheimer. We can start with a start with a little, start with a little pun. Get it out of the way. He's got that out of the way now. Feels better about himself. <laughs> are you a dad? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in, in, in spirit, not in not I in love, practice. But are you a dad? She's called you out straight when he's not. Yeah. He just loves doing these puns because uh, it's fun. Listen, thank you. This is Filmmakers Podcast. Appreciate you joining us and having a chat about what you girls do wonderfully so well. So Oppenheimer, talk about, you know, your process of when a script like this comes to you, the project like this comes to you and what you think about. What's the first thing you think about when you go, oh gosh, how Nolan's are we going to do, yeah, how are we going to do, you know, the makeup prosthetics, you're thinking about the hair, if, if we, yeah, we start, yeah, yeah Louisa, start with you. <laughs> Kick it off. <laughs> you know, once we all get together, then we actually do, um, so with this one, definitely orchestrated plan of how you actually do character development and what, what, you know, the director wants for the story. Mm. And so that's the initial start of the process. And it, it's quite complicated with something like this because you want to actually create characters that have arcs throughout the whole mm. story. So you, you, we did, um, charts that we could actually then show Chris and then visual eventually visual charts that we could actually work off of to create uh, the storyline plan for the prosthetics. Wow. And, and how, how much do you, how much do you work with the factual versus the fiction um, on something like this, where you're obviously working yeah. with, with real people? 
Um, yeah. At what stage does he jump in with, or, you know, or, or you jump in with your kind of storytelling elements that you want to show with the characters sure. versus what the archival footage might, might show? Yeah. Well, with Chris, it's straight away. He always has an idea of what he wants for the film. And so with this one, we had um, everybody's photos. So we knew what people looked like, really looked like. And then we, we just kind of had discussions about whether per character, whether we were going to do um, something that was more towards the character or something that just had a flavor of that. We definitely weren't doing lookalikes for mm. anybody. Yeah. yeah, I suppose that's quite an important decision, isn't it? It's it's capturing the essence of a character versus you know going to a documentary, and it's it's always a, yeah. it's a very important decision as a, as a filmmaker. Yeah, well, we definitely didn't want anything to be distracting, mm. and I think that that was part of the choices for all of this of every stage of every character of making sure that the audience was never pulled away from what we did. That yeah. actually enhance the story rather than you know there's something that you that you noticed it's something that you maybe were aware of after you've watched the project but not not during the film mm -hmm. brilliant yeah um how about your sort of entry into Oppenheimer. A little different than Louisa because it was my first time working with Chris. Um, I'm surprised I got the job because I made a complete fool of myself at the interview. Brilliant. And yeah. I couldn't figure out how to get out of the room. Really? Um, <laughs> what, what, what happened? I mean, we, we, you, you said it now. We, we have to hear. Well, I got led into a room and when you're led into somewhere, you don't really pay attention to the exit or how to get out. Unless, oh, right. You know. Okay. But I finish up the interview, turn around and I'm looking at this wall and it's like frosted glass <laughs> different panels and I'm like I know I came in there but how and I just had to turn to Emma his <laughs> producer of wife and say um how do I get out <laughs> and I was like the interview is going so well and then I just made a complete dork of myself and it was surprised that I got the job yeah. <laughs> sometimes that's endearing right there's some part of that that's maybe. endearing I mean he, maybe he's just like thinking hmm should we be hiring her <laughs> um but then I mean, that was the beginning of a great working relationship. So, yeah, Chris is so collaborative. He is such a fabulous leader. So you know what direction you need to go in at all times. And he brings everybody together to to work these things out. So just making sure that we're all on the same page with our actors, with costume, with makeup, with hair. And, um, yeah, it's a great way to work. Do you, do you go into those pitch meetings fully like with ideas this is how you you know you see characters yeah Louise I'll start with you yeah I mean you have to be really prepared because uh, Chris is always prepared but but with an open mind because when we do these initial meetings it's it's sort of everybody together so costumes props us and the actors and so everybody comes with these ideas but it's being open and fluid to know that Chris is directing everything and has a vision and then he can collaborate with the actors and we you know come forward with you know visuals that they can see mm. um, and then we create then we have a conversation and then create the 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 arcs really because uh, certainly with this one there was so many well, we had 73 characters and 18 agings. And then there were many people that had sort of three to five stages of the aging. And so we had to have a very linear continuity that we followed. So we had lots of meetings about that and figured it out with Chris how we were going to do it and when those changes were so that then Chris could film 
every which way like we weren't filming in order and so oh. we we were linear in our stuff but then you see it in the film it bounces around to tell the story and so it was really important that we knew when we were doing these changes and it, it was it was very orchestrated mm. so that it ends up looking you you get these stages that even though we shot them in different times they look identical each time you see it on film Mm. Yes, that must be interesting, especially to get the prosthetics exactly right, to really work on the aging, right? It's, they're, they're 45 at this point or they're 47. It, it, that Correct. must be re really nuanced as well, especially if you're in the same day jumping an age gap as well, right? Absolutely, because we were filming it all over the place and mm. over a long period of time. So, yeah, like every every wrinkle, it's specific, like all the pulls that we did on a lot of the aging, you you had to get it exactly right every time. And same with the paintwork, you know, any age spots or anything. Yeah, because it's IMAX, so you 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 guys are going to notice if it's off. Yes, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is it? What is it? You get sent on on the? Is it just the script? Is that, is that the initial bit? Is it even the whole script when you're like first sort of brought on board to the project, or do you get sent other materials like pitch decks or any sort of hint of the vision? I mean, it's it's interesting to hear from what it's like to get that first email about the the film um for me i had a meeting so i actually was given photographs to because there were so many photographs of all the characters but chris had a very specific view of what he wanted for certain characters and so i got those photos and then i read the script and then we had the discussion and then I knew obviously it was on IMAX and what it really meant. And, <laughs> and then you have to really prep hard because it, it's, we, we knew what we were facing. I mean, you know, it's one of those things of, it's it's the hardest feat to, to pull off on a film. And so when you're going in, you just have to really focus and, and be really detail oriented and know what you're doing, you know? Mm. Yeah. Same with you. I think, well, Louise has worked with Chris multiple times. So it might've been a little different for me. I saw some imagery in my interview and then once I had the job, I went in to read the script. It wasn't, it's, it's not a script that kind of gets emailed to you or sent to no, you. No, left so, on the table. <laughs> yeah, you make, you make a time and you go in and you, you sit there and read it and jot down as many notes and try and contain a, like as much of that information in your brain as you can. And then your research process starts. And we had a researcher on the project too, right? So if there's someone we couldn't find images of for certain time periods or anything like that we could reach out to them and get you know a little bit more but I think by the time I started they had so much to work from right. so that was fantastic yeah because you'd come into there's already images there's already placed which is nice like Killian Murphy's hair for instance I found it really interesting actually when I was watching it and how it changed how it was it moved and it was different depending on the time period of what was slightly fashionable as well even though who's behind the fashion i thought that was really interesting um what what in, in terms of on set do you prefer to use real hair or do you how do you make that work for you i like a mix of both okay. um chris wanted to avoid wigs um which at thought i th at first i thought was going to be overly challenging but I'm very glad that he went in that direction just because of IMAX I think and when you're mimicking a head of hair it's, it's so much <laughs> 
so much work to get that right. So with IMAX and his amazing close-ups and things, I was kind of pleased that we were using the actors on here. So when I first came on, I'd been told that uh, an original schedule had been done around Killian's haircuts. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, because it does change length. Yeah. So, but then I think they couldn't completely stick to that for whatever reasons. Um, I mean, it would be unheard of for a schedule to be centered around a haircut. Um, a schedule. <laughs> oh, Lord. I know. Oh, gosh. It's just too simple. <laughs> But we were luckily able to begin with Killian when he was young. So we had um, his own longer hair that I was able to perm, get that random messy kind of curl going mm. on. But he was only able to keep that for maybe like just over a week. Right. Yeah. And then it was time to cut it into the, I guess, the the Oppenheimer that we all no, but there was a there was a time in between when it was long and curly to when we know him with the the pipe and the hat and everything, and it was a little longer. So we had to use a, a little hairpiece on top. I see, right. And Chris had said to me, he's like, I want it to be so subtle that you're thinking when you put it on, why am I bothering? with this and I thought that was quite funny I was just like I'm not going to think that no that's just, there's reason for this and I did actually find myself on days going why am I even putting this on <laughs> yeah why am I bothering Tris was but right when yeah when when you see it it's just like oh yeah it's just that little bit of difference to to have a length change but it's trying to find that length of shortness that also works for when he gets older mm. so we couldn't thin it out too much or adjust his hairline too much because we were filming back and forth so much. So it was more just in styling and colouring, so adding more grey. So do you, do you get to do a lot of test, um, tests with the actors before you get on set? Because obviously with something like this, if you pick the wrong length at the start and then you need to go one direction too far or another direction too far, then you're in trouble. Uh, was, was there, or do you just have to know those things in advance? I think when it comes to haircuts, you can't really test. You just have to know. Like when we were doing camera tests, I was actually having to pin Killian's hair back to cheat it to mm. look short. Like I couldn't cut his hair at that point. Yeah. So, yeah, the haircut was a slow process because we didn't obviously want to go too far and then not be able to, you know, glue it back on. Um, so you just easy does it, I think, until you find the right length. Right. Yeah. Is it similar with uh, makeup prosthetics? Are you uh, How many tests do you do? What's that whole process like? Does it differ from film to film as well, I imagine? Um, it does. I mean, for IMAX, you have to test. I mean, you really do. And with we obviously have black and white in this as well. So for our side, it, it was definitely really, really important to test. So we not only did camera tests, so we could test how aging worked on different actors because it's it's it was literally designed per actor per stage so everybody's face reacts differently to prosthetic pieces and aging stretch and stipple so what you do on people's faces is going to be completely different and how it moves so you have to test that to make sure that nothing's off because on IMAX you're going to see it right and so we were we were, did pre-tests to kind of figure out what we didn't want to do. And then we started doing tests. So we tested throughout the whole film. So 
right to the end when we're doing the full, the, the oldest age. That was tested sort of probably like four or five times on every actor. And we were changing tiny little elements on, on the pieces to make it move better with each people's faces. And so some of the, some of the actors had more pieces on at the beginning and then we reduced some of them where it didn't work for them. It didn't actually enhance anything. And all of those were seen by Chris. And so, Everything, yeah, everything was really orchestrated on this one. It what there was no kind of guessing. So, what, yeah. What's some of the differences? Because you you worked on Inception, Interstellar, yeah. uh, two of yeah. my favorite, probably my two favorite Nolan films, actually, as well as this one. What were some of the things that you maybe had learnt about shooting on IMAX and working with Chris that you took forward to this? I mean, I think IMAX, you just have to be detail oriented, and I think every probably hair and makeup person is, but you really have to kind of never feel that you have it under control. You have to be aware every day that it's ginormous and, and work towards that. So I think that's what I learned from all of the other ones that don't ever be complacent. It's like, you know, if you think you know everything like you don't and just forge ahead every day because it makes you cautious with stuff. But with Chris, it's like he guides, like Jamie Lee said, he guides really, really well and he's very detail oriented. So you're being led by somebody who if you don't see something, he'll see it. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're, that really helps, doesn't it? Where you just don't ever feel like you're completely on your own. Like he does notice everything and he's, he's a very, he's very aware. So that, that's great. And, um, I mean, on Interstellar, we did one aging at the end of that. So that had helped a lot where, you know, obviously it, it was an, an older makeup, but it helped me understand what could work. And so I kind of reformulated that kind of aging and then started to process it for this project. Um, but you know, we were doing agings on this where it, it's a much younger age. So it's actually mm. in some ways a lot harder because you, you have to hold back because part of it wasn't, not wanting anything to be distracting, you know, and so you're you're pushing the aging to make people go to a middle age aging, and it 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 had to cap at a certain point because all of these agings were in rooms of people who were the actual age, you know. So you were the as you can tell in the Senate or in room twenty twenty two, you're flipping, th- you know, facing people who are that age and then going to an aging makeup mm. and it had to not be distracting in any way. So you had to make sure you, all of the choices that you made were, had value on the film. Mm. And they did. I mean, it, it looked fantastic. I loved the aging, especially aging down. Cause that, like you say, that's harder when people are old and now you've got to get adding get wrinkles, wrinkles might yeah. be easier, but I don't yeah. know. I'm not, yeah. make, but I imagine taking them off is hard or trying to make them look younger must always be difficult. Yeah, we had um, interesting tools. Like we use plumpers for Killian. At the, what's uh, what's for, a plumper? It's a it's a inner piece that you could put inside somebody's mouth to actually change the shape of their face. Oh, I might do so that. Get the, yeah, <laughs> get the, the, the cheeks out. Cheeky guy. Yeah. 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 Oh. And then obviously um, with his younger um, stage, we you know I took um, most of his um, 
freckles because Helene has really beautiful skin, but uh, freckles because uh, Oppenheimer did not have freckles. And then put all the freshness that you have in a young face into his face as well. So there was quite a lot of work to make people look younger for those you know, characters. I mean, obviously help with Jamie. Yeah, hair. Yeah. yeah, but it goes so unnoticed, Louisa. I don't, mm, I don't think, like, even when you explained to me what you had done to Killian, I was just like, oh, wow, that's a process. Yeah. I mean, I could look at him and see, like, oh, yeah, cool, he looks younger. But to know the process that you went through was fascinating. Mm. It's pretty awesome. how, how long did it take to, let's do, for one to make him younger? Yeah. And then the older, was there a big time difference? Well, one of the things we really had to test was making sure that we could get all of these makeups as short a time as possible because we were filming for months and it was it was a lot for the actors to, you know, be through that process. So for the younger one, we ended up getting it to about 35 minutes. And then for most of the aging, we got Killian's makeup down to about an hour 15 which was great because, yes. you know, he was having to do it for so many weeks. And then the much older stage, then that was a, you know, four hour makeup. And, oh, but I had a huge team at that point because we had three people in each person so that we could expedite it, you know, for that day. And so we had over 16 makeup artists to do all of that work. Wow. Yeah. And for you, Jamie Lee, then, like Babylon, I loved, but I imagine there was loads of wigs in that the whole setup yeah they were nuts. and then coming to this in terms of your what what was what was different what was the process like for you was it still exactly the same was the things here that were slightly different for you i think it was different it was uh, more controlled in a way i suppose which was great more collaborative and that chris really leads that as i was saying before that with the with the fittings and things, Louisa and I would be involved from the very beginning. So you would have that communication from the start, um, not relying on wigs for these changes, a few little hair pieces here and there. And I'd never worked on anything where I'd had to paint hair so much. So for the graying, right. yeah, we needed to, as Louisa was saying with makeup, every head of hair is different. So we would have to come up with different recipes and techniques for each head of hair and kind of test to see how far we could paint. Because you mm. kind of get to a certain point and it's just like, that dude's hair looks painted. It looks like a wall. Yeah. So especially with <laughs> the IMAX. So, and white hair has a translucency to it. So it's difficult to coat hair with something. To make and it look try and make it look like yeah. that. Yeah. So it was just painting hair strand by strand sometimes. Yeah. So there's, we would airbrush, we would paint with brushes, we would use um, pens, like mm -hmm. white and silver pens as well. So just trying to oh. keep. A couple um, of Sharpies thrown in. Yeah. yeah. So, was yeah. it really? <laughs> Hope it comes off. Yeah. It does. It does. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, but at times you were literally watching paint dry on. Yeah. On, Head to head, yeah, and just, just, yeah, being very careful with how you are painting, so you're not. Let him get away with a joke. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> so what you tell him. Yeah. <laughs> well, what were some of the biggest challenges on this particular shoot, like for, for you? Like, what, what were some of the hardest scenes or moments? Do you think? Um, I think um, a mixture of the painting and just staying on top of that plan that we had organised at the very beginning of just trying to make sure that everybody's storyline and those aging arcs and all of that type of thing worked 
and just making sure we all stayed on top of it at all times, I think, was you couldn't go to sleep at the wheel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I imagine. And it's a long shoot as well. Um, what, what, what do you like from directors when you're first jumping on a project? It doesn't have to be Oppenheimer, but generally. Yeah. Yeah. But, but bright, what is a it? Vision. Yeah, a vision, <laughs> yeah. communication. Yeah. Um, yeah. What what things do you, like you've learned over your times that you go, oh, I wish directors would do this. For our listeners, which is a lot of filmmakers out there who would love to work with wonderful people like yourselves. Yeah, I mean, we're there to facilitate and help them get what they want on screen. So the more they can help in that communication and consultation and even if it's just coming to us and going what are my options right it's just some something to start with yeah. yeah and also i think having directors who technically understand what we do mm. because i think most people don't understand what we do you know um the technical aspects of our job the fact that you know makeup doesn't mean just putting makeup on somebody to make them look beautiful that actually means aging them or making them bald or putting facial hair on them or the, all of the aspects of our job, that that's being a makeup artist and, and being a hairdresser, you know, within a film setting. And I think that really helps when a director understands that because they understand then exactly what Jamie Lee said, that it's a tool to facilitate the story and that it has value. There's not just um, something that it's that's annoying and time consuming. Do you, do you do you think there's a lot of directors that don't think about the story side in terms of putting together the makeup and the hair? Because you know, I, I found a lot of films that they there's a lot of this kind of okay, yes, it's, it's a, there's a time frame. We need to get this character to look like this at the start, and then they just forget about the that side of the the process. Uh, obviously, you've gone into a lot of it with with Christopher. Uh, is that something that's kind of neglected a lot? Do you think? I think there can be missed opportunities mm. um, and that might just be through not having that dialogue to know that there's something could happen there. Yeah. yeah. I don't feel like I see it a lot. No. I mean, I think we were lucky on this one because, I mean, you you know, even with like Hoiter and stuff like that, you know, I think that there there are so many people that kind of, on, on certainly on Chris's movies, that actually understand what we do mm. and understand that that we can be collaborative and actually create, you know, create a vision for the you know, filmmaker, you know. And they understand it has to work in camera. Yeah. Like Chris isn't going to be fixing stuff up afterwards. No. no. Yeah, yeah um, there's no CGI. Yeah, 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 none. None, which yeah, is incredible. None. So it means for yeah. you, you're going, oh, everything has to be. And what, great. Yeah. what a great yeah. way to make films, right? Mm. It's alive. Yeah. If you had any advice to give your younger selves when you were starting out in the industry, um, maybe looking for a first break, what might that be? In your roles that you are now. Louisa. Yeah, I think um, if it's something you really want to do, just trust that you will be able to do it. It's a hard process that you, it's not easy to get into the film industry, but if you want to do it, regardless of whether you know anybody in it, just keep pushing forward and keep learning your craft. You know, you can do that in, in, many ways so just always keep looking to learn and and forge ahead you know great yeah i think once you think if you think you know it all then you should retire i i think you 
have to understand what it is that you're getting into and maybe that is talking to people about what it truly is like and you have to love it because if you don't love it you would be miserable I think (laughs) with the amount of hours we do and yeah it's all consuming I think when you are on a job so you have to love it. Yeah and definitely with this kind of level film you know you you as you can tell you have to put everything into it so it's like yeah I agree with Jamie Lee you you really need to love it. <laughs> Brilliant. This has been amazing. Thank yeah. you, Jamie Lee. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Louisa. Thank you. Thank you very much. And congratulations on an amazing film. I loved it. Really, <laughs> yeah, really wonderful. It. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, girls. Hey, hey. Yeah. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That was enjoyable. I hope you did enjoy that. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Again, this is just so cool to get this insight. It was something Phil Hawkins had mentioned, actually. He really enjoyed the episode we did uh, on The Killer with Eric Messerschmitt and Kurt Baxter and Kleiss as well, talking about how they made that. And Don Lenoir. And Don Lenoir, talking about how they made Tinchers The Killer. And it's just great to get more people behind the scenes. Mm. Phil asked for it. We have delivered. Got to, got to give him something after he, uh, after he, lost, after the, he, he lost the annual quiz to me. Yeah. <laughs> lost it by not being there. He lost it. <laughs> Forfeit. <laughs> Forfeited the quiz. If you've not listened to that episode, by the way, our Christmas special, do go listen. Uh, and if you haven't heard last week's episodes with James Hawes, One Life and Slow Horses director, and Friday's episode with George C. Wolf talking about Rustin and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, then do go listen to them. After you've listened to this, of course. Uh, next in the list of Oppenheim amazing people behind the scenes. We're going to go with editor Jennifer Lame. Oh, we had fun talking to Jennifer. She was incredible. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful, friendly human being, eh? Yes, really friendly, really open. Talented as well. Yeah, very talented, very talented. This is the second time she'd worked with Nolan. The first time was on Tenet. <laughs> Not a bad one to edit for your first one yeah. going backwards. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to edit something, it, I mean, it's, it's that one. It's that yeah. memento, isn't it? Really, yeah. <laughs> in terms yeah. of like, in terms of like one to Nolan confusion. Confusion and going backwards. But she does talk about yeah. that and how they did it as well, mm. uh, and Oppenheimer as well. But other editing credits include uh, Francis Ha, uh, the ah. love. Yeah, The Lovely Bones, Manchester by underrated. the Sea. Very yeah. underrated. And Manchester by the film, Sea, yeah. Hereditary. Yeah. Um, She's done some great ones. Midsummer, she, she did additional editing on. Marriage Story, main editor. Uh, Judith mm. and the Black Messiah, additional editing. Don't Worry Darling, mm. and Blonde. Uh, but uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever and Postcard from Earth are our latest ones as well, which is Darren Aronofsky, which is not out yet. And Oppenheimer. Um, Again, she's amazing. We don't need to do any more intro than just what her credits are and what she says, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is Jennifer Lane, myself and Dom. Have fun.
how, how are you doing other than the jet lag? <laughs> I'm doing great. I love London. Yep. I love yeah. being here. Like all I do is walk around the city and go. I love book shopping here because you guys have way better got covers. Some, yeah. The UK covers are just so much better than the American. And, and I'm like a book nerd, so I like a nice cover. You mean you have the front cover? You yeah. mean the sleeve? I know it sounds so silly, yeah, but yes. Yeah. Like I just got this Claire Keegan book, Antarctica. Yeah. It's I think it's one okay. of the first ones. Okay. It has this like great cat on the cover. And I looked up the American version. It's like a woman on a beach and like her, ba- like, it's like, why would I want to own that? I yeah. don't, but I, I got the cat one. That's amazing. Do you still read filmmaking books? It's funny. I'm reading this um, Mike Nichols book right now. Yeah. It's actually oh, okay. great. Okay. It's quite thick. So what I do is I do like audio book. Like last night when I got back, uh, I like yeah. was chilling in my room and trying to get to sleep. So I was listening to it. But I and then I have the physical copy too. That's how I got through Anna Karenina recently. That's how you got through it. Well, no, it's just I feel like we'll take that as an official endorsement for that movie. <laughs> no, no, book. book. It was no, it was an amazing experience. I love the book, but I realized like the way people used to read back in the days, they would just read all the time, yes, right? Yeah, but we yeah. can't do that because mm. we have like the phones and the, and mm. work and whatever. Uh-huh. So in order to stay immersed, what I did is I would read it all the time, and then whenever I was in the car or doing things, or I would go for a walk at work, and I would listen to it to like stay in the world. Yeah, and it helps so much because then I just became like obsessed. As opposed to just reading the physical copy, you can't, because mm. it's so big, you can only read it really like at night. And it hurts your hand because yeah. you've got to hold it, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, honestly, I, that's, that's what bothers me yeah. about heavy books. And the, and the eyes. Yeah. The, the eyes, the yeah, eyes, that's why I wear yeah. glasses now on. But, but the heaviness of it when I'm in bed, my wrist goes, oh, this is, I'm struggling here. No, really, it's true. Yeah. It's, yeah. So, so you, you read you read sort of, have um, you read a lot of fiction? Has that helped inspire, you know, get to where you are in your in your career? Like, has, has that oh, always been a funny. I don't, I don't know about that. No? I don't know if okay. it's helped me in my career, but it's just helped me like mentally. I think mm. it's a good way, especially when you stare at computers all the time. Yeah. yeah. It's a good way to do something different with your brain. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. soothing. Well, what got you into it? What, what was the yeah. thing for you that went, uh, this is what I want to do? Oh, I think when I was younger, I just was obsessed with movies. I was the third child, like nobody really cared about me. And I would just watch TV a lot. But this is back in the day when you have cable. So it's just like HBO, just like movies all the time. And then like we had the video stores and I would just, you know, where they had it um, arranged by director. And I would go to like the Hitchcock section and like devour it. Wow, nice. And so, um, and I would watch trashy stuff too, like all the John Carpenter movies and all that stuff. That's the best stuff as well. Um, But yeah, I just was really into movies as a kid. And then um, I ended up going to a filmish school. Filmish school. It's, it was called Wesleyan in Connecticut. It's in America. It's in the U.S. It's not like an NYU type of school where it's it's more like watching movies and talking about them in a little more uh, okay, cerebral. Okay, like film theory sort of stuff. Yeah, kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. And then while I was there, you make a thesis, and I didn't want to. I ended up making a documentary. And I shot hours and hours of film about these like weirdos who owned a store who were fighting the local town to build this mural. Mm-hmm. And I got like really into the weeds of it. And they were all very strange. And um, it was really funny. But I had just hours and hours of footage. And I just became obsessed with editing this like 10 minute documentary. And that's after that, I was like, oh, this is really great. I love this. And so after college, I just continued to do that. And I, I, I think I was also really, I just wanted to work. You know, mm. I had a lot of friends who I went to school with who were like, I'm going to go direct and raise money and try to make short films. And I was like, I just want to get to work mm. and I have this skill. So I just moved out to L.A. and I tried to work, um, right. and get jobs and, and 
editing was something I felt like I had a skill at. So. And how did you do that? How did you? You said I just wanted to work and I wanted uh, and I did work. How did you find those jobs? I just went to LA. Uh, I tried to meet as many people as possible. I ended up doing, you know, crappy jobs where I, mm. I was editing commercials from stock footage of this startup company, which was very strange. Um, Elon Musk's probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was just SpaceX. And, I heard yeah. it. <laughs> and then I was, um, I worked uh, like the overnight shift on reality television. Do you guys remember the real world? I love the real world. Yeah, yeah. So, like yeah, a job yeah, yeah. where I had to watch all the tapes and transcribe and log like oh. crazy footage oh, yeah. um, for the editors. But all that's right. kind of how I learned Avid and stuff and mm. just got fast on the computer. Just so doing crappy jobs, but it was good for the mind. I think it was good to like get down in the gutter to... Did you, did you know that you wanted to go into more narrative stuff? Yeah, yeah. But I think I knew that it was going to be a fight because it was actually yeah. good to come to LA instead of New York because I think LA... like. I would try really hard to ask people in editing rooms, like, hey, give me a chance, like, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But it was like, no, you need to do some other stuff first. Yeah. So it was, it was a good eye-opener of, like, you really need to pay your dues before you can, like, rise the ranks. So. And whenever you do something like that, you do learn, like, say, even yeah. doing the really hard, tricky jobs. Yeah. You learn so much from it, right? Because so much. It, it, you've got to do even more detail, even more trying to find a story from nothing sometimes. Exactly. Right? Yeah, no, and it was, it was really informative. And then eventually I just kept... I just kept asking around and finally my friend's sister I knew was a assistant editor in Woody Allen's cutting rooms in New York. And I was uh, like, if she ever needs help, I will do anything for her. I will like, I'll drop yeah. everything. And one day she called me and she, she had an apprentice editor quit on her on a Friday and she needed wow. someone on Monday. And she was like, if you really want to come to New York, I will hire you and get you into the union, but you have to be here by Monday. You want, yep. So I quit my job. Wow. Got rid of my apartment, broke up with my boyfriend, yeah. <laughs> packed Wait, all my what? bags, yeah. and really? literally got on a plane and left and went to New York and like left LA. And she got me to the union. And what, what was it you learned on that that first that first sort of dive in? I mean, how how did you make make yourself valuable in that first job and and move from that into doing solo editing? Well, first of all, working with on a Sydney Lumet movie was amazing because mm. he actually did film dailies, which is very strange, oh, amazing, yeah. which is funny now that like full circle working with Chris Nolan, who does film dailies, because I think mm. when he first met me, he's like, you've never done film dailies before. I was like, yeah. actually, I have. <laughs> um, so yeah, Sydney Lumet, um, he screened his film dailies every day at five. He rapped on that movie every day at four so he could have dinner with his wife. Um, such a lovely human That's being. lovely. Yeah. Um, his so book, his brilliant. book's great as well. By I the way. love that book. Yeah. I, read, I read it when I did that movie because right. I was, yeah. And yeah, so I just shadowed the assistant editor. I helped her prepare the film dailies every day. I went to film dailies. I sat there and I just paid it. And I was just like, God, this is what I, this is so amazing. And watched the editor sit next to Sidney Lumet and take mm -hmm. notes. And I was just like, this is magic. Like, I want to do this. Um, yeah. And I just, really paid attention and then from that job you just try to hustle and get your next job and um yeah i don't know it was great. i mean what, what was what was that what was your process in terms of like just understanding how to cut really good story like you know working out what a good performance is working out story structure is that is that all just intuitive from your your film background like growing up watching films and just having good film taste or or, or did you like really jump jump into research like how did you kind of get to the, the the point where you are now where you've you're working on Christopher Nolan films yeah and that's such a hard question. Yeah, Dom. I struggle with that question. Yeah, well, a lot. I mean, because there's, there's, there's different parts to it. Isn't no, there? There's totally. like a long stages to get yeah, to, yeah. to that. Like, I think for me, I'm a quite obsessive personality, and my first at full editing editing credit was Francis Ha um, uh, yeah, with Noah yeah. Baumbach, and yeah. I think mm. that was quite a unique experience in the sense that I was brought on as an assistant who could cut. So, because mm. there was an editor on, so I would, I would. Um, 
you know, prep everything and be the assistant editor. And then if he, you know, he would throw me scenes and do stuff like that. And I would cut scenes. But eventually he had to leave to go do something else. And then they were going to find another editor. But I knew the footage so well because I had watched all the footage. I'd organized it. I was just like immersed in it. And I really felt very connected to that story because mm-hmm. I was in a similar place in my life where I was just like young and I had a similar relationship with a woman, like a best friend who. So I just loved the movie. And Noah would come in and we would just cut together while they were looking for an editor. And then eventually they stopped looking for an editor. I was like, okay, we're just going to edit this movie because, you know, it's working. That's great. But I think like that was a great lesson for me of like the footage is the key to everything. And Mm. if you, you know, like I, I think I had a good perspective on the film and I do think I had, I have a good rhythm and I do think I'm, it's just something that I... I don't know. It's it's I I liken it to like playing the piano, right? It's like I learned mm. how to. I pra, I'd been practicing it for so long. I've been doing it since I was twenty five years old, kind of wow. like immersed yeah. in the cutting room and that experience, and then getting to do it on Francis Ha um, and working with Noah. I just learned so much. He's an amazing filmmaker. He loves the editing process. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's forging that relationship as well, isn't it? Then, yeah. You know, you work with someone like that, and you you create that collaboration yeah mm-hmm. and then you know you've 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 done something pretty good pretty amazing francis Hard did so well so did yeah. obviously that make a difference for you oh it was terms- huge it was right. huge yeah. and then i kept working with him and yeah. i think his confidence in me and our relationship also propelled me forward probably quicker than i would have because uh, yeah just having that relationship was huge in my life and like mm. him believing in me and trusting me and then it gave me even more confidence to experiment and i just mm. think yeah that was that was a huge huge um, film for me and just time period in my life. And it was just working with Noah and Greta, like they're just incredible, creative, creative force. And it just was really fun. And so, yeah, I went on to do a bunch of movies. So so what were some of the differences between, because those two have a very distinct style in themselves Mm -hmm. and then coming on to the Christopher Nolan project, Mm -hmm. how did you get onto this Oppenheimer? And also what were some of the differences in, in their filmmaking processes? I got on, I, I, my, the first movie I did with Chris was Tenet. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I got, um, yeah, I just got an interview because he kind of went out to a bunch of, I think, um, agencies and was just looking for a new editor. And I just got put on a list and I got an interview and I kind of didn't, I didn't think much of it in the sense that I was like, oh, there's no world I'm getting this job, but obviously I'm going to go meet Christopher Nolan. I have so many questions for him. I love his movies and his process. I've got questions for you, Chris. Exactly. Yeah. And it was funny because I was, I was doing the color correction on marriage story that we were in the DI when I got Mm. the interview. And it was so, so when I went to go meet him, I asked him a lot about his coloring process because he doesn't do a DI, which is Mm. a DI, if people don't know, is when you're coloring a movie, you do it digitally, right? So you're in a room with a colorist on a computer and Mm. it's quite, you know, you can do anything. It's pretty, it's actually pretty daunting. You can go down a lot of rabbit holes because Mm. there's so many um, options. Whereas Chris and Hoyta do their color correction on film. And, you know, you watch a reel, you give the colorist a couple notes and then she goes and like, like a week later, I I forget the turnaround time, but it's a lot um, shorter and it's such a more interesting kind of physical process. So I was asking him a lot about that, about how he does that in the interview. And then we talked a bit about that. And obviously I couldn't read the script. And I said, what's the script about at the end of the interview? And he said, oh, it's a huge action film. And I kind of laughed and I was like, have you seen my resume? (laughs) Um, And he laughed and he was like, yep. And then we kind of just said goodbye. So I didn't think much of it. I was like, okay, well, 
um, that was fun. Do, do you think it's sharing that diligence between like that real detail focus that you seem to have from, from what you're, you're telling us and, and what Christopher has? Do you think that might have been the connection? Yeah, I don't know. And I, yeah, maybe that was the connection. I have no idea. I've never really talked to him about it. But then I, then Emma Thomas, the producer on the films and his wife called me a week later. She asked me a question. What was it? She said, why would you want to work on these, this movie <laughs> given your, <laughs> she was, you know, like given what you do, like why, like why, why do you want to do this? Mm, and um, I said to her, I was like, um. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a really good question. I was like, I feel like you guys make small movies and big movies well. And no one else does that. Like people either make like smaller movies, great, mm -hmm. or like big action movies, great. But no one really does both really well and you guys somehow do that and i would really love to be a part of that and she was like oh yeah that is what we do that's a great answer because that is wow. kind of what like you know they can't like if you watch like memento like mm -hmm. what a oh, fucking amazing um, movie ludicrous, right ludicrous yeah. movie. and like the fact yeah. that you can make memento and then like interstellar like that's crazy yeah. so yeah and then i got the job and i was like whoa but that's kind of how it all happened and yeah i don't um i don't i don't know exactly why Chris hired me but it's worked out and That's then talented obviously um, and then we did Oppenheimer together because we did Tenet together all right well he obviously liked you as well from yeah. Tenet yeah and that worked yeah it went well yeah we'll talk about I think we'll come on to Chris in a minute into let's go Oppenheimer for a little bit yeah. in terms of what's your process like once are you on set looking at some of you getting footage there and then are you in a room straight away talk us through the process especially on Oppenheimer and how it worked for you. So the process on Tenet and the process on Oppenheimer were quite different because on Tenet, I was on set from day one. I traveled all around the world. I was in the dailies trailer watching dailies with everybody every day, which is how it typically is. On Oppenheimer, I was on, I had signed on to Wakanda Forever with mm -hmm. Ryan Coogler. Then I found out, then Chris kind of, I went out to lunch with Chris and he told me about Oppenheimer. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, I am signed on to this film, but it, it's going to work out probably. And he said, we'll, f we'll figure it. Let's try to figure it out. But then Wakanda kept pushing because it had a couple um, issues with, you know, the pandemic and what, and one of the actors got hurt. And anyway, it kept pushing and pushing and pushing. So eventually I, it ended up that I had to miss the shoot on Oppenheimer to kind of at least see the directors cut through on Wakanda forever. Mm -hmm. So I came on to Oppenheimer the day they finished shooting, which is very um, strange. And I asked a lot of editors advice, like, oh, what do you guys think about this? And they were like, don't do it. It's mm. horrible because you literally show up and you have, you know, 50 plus days of footage to go through yeah. as, as opposed to doing it day by day. Mm -hmm. But I obviously was going to do it. I was mainly asking for strategy, but yeah, nobody yeah. gave me any strategy. So just, just like, yeah, don't yeah. do it. Just, I was yeah, like, okay, yeah. obviously I'm going to do question. it. Yeah. <laughs> I know that wasn't the question. Slog through. Exactly. Um, so anyway, I get, I get there and I meet, I see Chris and we have a quick chat and he said, just watch as much as you can. I want you to just watch as much as you can try to, you know, if you can put some of it together, that's fine. But the main thing is just like go through all the footage. And then he went off to London for three or four weeks. And I ended up starting from the beginning, which typically I would never do, right? Because usually I'm yeah, on set, so I get true, whatever yeah. day they're shooting. So I started mm. from the beginning and I went through all the way to the end. And it was in this particular film, it was actually incredibly helpful mm. because I think it would have been, there was just something about it where also I love the script and I think I had very high expectations for the movie. And it's like, is it going to live up to the script? Because I love the script. And it was so great. Like, it's just that fantasy of everything was like what I imagined and more, you know, and not having been on set, everything, every time I opened a scene, it was like a present, you know, mm. it's like, oh, wow, this is what this yeah. looks like. And this is gorgeous. And so it was, I actually found it thrilling. And it was also really nice to have Chris be like, 
you know, no pressure. You don't have to put the whole thing together. And like that kind of took all the pressure off. So I ended Mm -hmm. up, I ended up putting the whole thing together because it's when someone says like, you don't have to do something, it's actually easier to do it. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, So I actually had this magical four weeks where I just like immersed myself in the movie. It actually kind of reminded me of like those, that Francis, those Francis holidays where I just, I just had the luxury of just getting to just dive in and just luxuriate for this four weeks by myself. Right. No pressure, no like, you know, going to set every day and rushing to dailies mm. and, oh, I didn't finish my scene, but yeah. and then getting that. So it was actually kind of great. And I wouldn't, I would probably say I wouldn't want to do it again necessarily, mm. but um, on this particular film, it was really great. So, so how, how long was the initial assembly slash edit that you did for Oppenheimer? And, and what were some of the changes that you and Chris discussed after that point. Yeah, I think it was like three hours and 35 minutes, which is quite tight. But I typically cut quite tight. Like my assemblies are pretty tight. And I think that comes from kind of my Noah Baumbach days because he cuts pretty tight. And I just Mm. knew that about him. So I would never make like a scene like long, laborious or, you know, I I would always cut things pretty tight, even my first pass. But the funny thing is I didn't really cut the Trinity section because when I was going through and I got to the Trinity section, I saw all the amazing pieces that him and Hoyt and Ruth and everybody, like, it's just, it was fucking amazing. Sure. But I was like, you know what? This is going to be amazing and I'll just do it with Chris and it'll be great. I don't need to waste time doing it because for me, what was the most important is learning the characters. Mm. And I wanted to get to the other side of Trinity because my favorite part, of, one of my favorite parts of the script is the last third. And to yeah. me, that's like a really important part of the movie. And um, I wanted to just like really dive into that and make sure I got through all the way to the end. So I literally just like popped a couple things, made the, like, you know, did the whole description of the bomb going off really quickly and then got through it. And I like always joke that um, the first person we screened the movie for is Emma Thomas's wife, the producer. And um, he let he screened it. We didn't do Trinity. He was like, let's just screen it. We, we fixed a bunch of stuff in the assembly, but then we screened it. For, I remember afterwards, she was like, that was really great, but I was really underwhelmed by Trinity because <laughs> we didn't really tell her that we just kind of didn't do it. Um, but yeah, that was the one part I kind of I didn't I couldn't waste time getting bogged down in it because yeah. I knew that would take a lot. A, yeah. A lot yeah. Of time. How, how long was your f- the first sort of full cut because it, it's a long movie anyway. Well, so it, yeah, the first cut was three hours and 35 minutes, but I didn't cut Trinity. Right. So therefore. Yeah. So yeah. that obviously added a lot of time back in. Right. Okay. So, cause with that, like you, that's a lot to watch. Do you do it in sections? Do you do reel by, you know, going to the yeah, reel? Yeah, I did reel of, by reel. It's mm-hmm. it's technically for those who don't know, it's usually five reels, right? Is, yeah. Or no, does it change? No, just, because it, his movies are true reels, like true oh, film reels. Oh, I see. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. Like in the digital world, it's all kind of fake now. Yeah. But so we do his movies reels. it's legit so and a reel can't really be more than 20 minutes okay it was a lot of reels yeah right yeah. so you could and you cut reel by reel so you go reel one which is say 20 minutes so mm-hmm. you'll get up to yeah the, the turning point of that first section mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right okay and that's how you go through the edit in each time because mm-hmm. it must be daunting having a three and a half hour four hour because i mean uh, you have to watch the whole thing every now and then, even if you're just going through the section. Oh, we watch it constantly. Yeah. yeah. And that's a lot. Of, that's, <laughs> that's a lot, a lot of, of hours. Yeah, it is. You know, it like is. compared yeah. to like an hour and a half, you know, two hour film, which already is, it takes up a, a, a chunk of time. Mm. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a challenge. Yeah. How, how do you do it? Because um, Tenant was reasonably lent as well, but this was, does it make a difference to you or not at all? You're still trying to tell the story. So. Yeah, not really. Yeah. It doesn't really make a difference to me. Okay. 
It's like, does it feel long? But I don't really think of the time as like time, if that makes sense. Mm. And I think... Neither does Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Especially <laughs> in Interstellar. Yeah. And when we were cutting, we never cut for time. So like there, there's this whole kind of thing of we had to get to three hours to fit on the IMAX platter. But we never... If that even came up in the cut it, cutting room, Chris was like, we're not thinking about that. Worst case, they'll make the platter bigger, even though we all kind of knew they couldn't really make the platter bigger. Um, but Chris didn't want to ever talk about that. And he was like, we're just making the best movie that we want to make and we're never going to cut for time. So we never really cut for time. And you were asking scenes like one of my favorite sections in the movies, um, the Pash sequence with Casey Affleck. You know, I love that. He's great. It's such a bizarre left turn in the film because mm. I know we're all trying to get to Trinity and they're, they're like Los Alamos is churning and we're like going and then all of a sudden we go back to Berkeley and there's this guy and everything's really weird and the gene stuff. But I think it's such an amazing left turn in the movie. And I actually find it really funny and so fascinating to watch Killian just like squirm. Watch this squirm. man you've seen be so confident and such a mm. genius and yes. so cocky. And then you just watch him fail miserably yeah. at this one. Like he's just like a bumbling. He doesn't know how to kind of be sneaky and... Um, he can't lie really well. Mm. And he's just, so it's so, I love that scene. And there was a much longer version of that scene. But I think as we're, you know, as we're screening the movie, you realize like that that point in the movie, you can only take a left turn for so long before you lose people. Yes. So like we had to cut it down and just make the best version of that scene, you know, like maybe half the length because because of the pacing of the film, not because we were cutting for time, but yes. because we didn't want to lose people. And like every time we cut, like when he goes to see the, the president, mm -hmm. um, Truman, oh, yes, there's a much longer version of that scene that I love, but event a but that's still like, you know, after the bomb, we really need to get going back to Strauss and like get on to that storyline. Yes. So we had to cut that shorter. Um, so anytime we cut a scene shorter, it was always either for character development or, you know, pacing in the film. Mm. It was never to make the film shorter, if that makes Which sense. Which is how it should be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Were, there, were there many moments in this or, or Tenet where you get to like maybe go off script a little bit in terms of what, because I mean, Christopher obviously plans the, the things very, very carefully, like the script especially and, and the structure, he often has something very clear in mind. Were there many moments where you can kind of go off the beaten path in terms of the, the edit or is it kind of more? Yeah, on the, I think, yeah? I, I mean, honestly, with his scripts, it is pretty difficult. Like you're not doing major rearrangements or like rewrites in the edit, which is lovely. And I think it's great, but we would definitely move some things around. And when you do move things around, I think for him, it's a really, big deal so mm. we would watch you know a lot of if we move something around we would watch you know go back 40 minutes and watch 40 minutes after to see kind of how it affected everything and uh yeah i think in the beginning of the movie we moved some stuff around um that montage i think was moved from where it was in the script or little pieces in the you know little pieces in the montage were in different places so we would do little things and play around but i think that's what's so fun about his scripts is they are so locked in and so when you do change things it's a big deal but it's really exciting and, and he takes it very seriously but in a way that's fun not in a way that he's not precious about it but he's like okay what are, why are we doing this why didn't I think of this earlier? What changed? And um, so it's all very thoughtful, which I find very fun because I love talking things out. I obviously love to talk a lot. Which so, is great. <laughs> for us, for a podcast, yeah. we're very so, happy. Um, when I'm in the editing room, if someone's like, I don't know about this, let's talk it through. I'm like, yes, let's talk it through. <laughs> yes, let's talk it through. In terms of adding like sound, because obviously the sound is so important as well in this film. For you as an editor, do you like to put sound on top? Do you kind of put your own... Uh, what's the word? Um, temp, 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 temp Oh yeah. Soundtrack temp effects to, to, to know when to pull stuff out or in to, to show Chris. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, because I came from kind of that world of being an assistant and an editor and working on super low budget movies in New York, oftentimes I had to do a lot of things myself. Mm-hmm. So I had to do like a lot of the sound stuff early on because obviously when you're working on low budget movies, you don't have the money mm. to bring sound editors on early. Sure. Yeah. You don't have music editors, stuff like that. So I'm, I was used to doing a lot of stuff like that myself. And I think Chris, um, his previous editor, Lee Smith, came from the sound world. Um, so he and Dodie during this, um, his editor on Memento mm. and Insomnia. Um, she also came from the sound world. He's He he loves sound. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I knew that sound would be a big deal for him. And so I knew I kind of had to be on top of my game in terms of um, doing temp sound and right. um, editing music quickly for him. If he wanted to try something out really quickly, he, he doesn't want to send it to a music editor. Because obviously on his films, we definitely have hugely talented music editors, but they don't come on until a little bit later. And also, you know, we all work quite fast. So it's it's good to be able to have that skill. Mm. So yeah, I, I put in a lot of temp sounds and um, we do a lot of music together. Is that temp music as well? Like, No, it, no, no, it's not temp music. So, so you don't have the Hans Zimmer or whoever is doing one of the movies. Soundtrack early, scores. I remember the Interstellar story about, you know, getting it done the theme created very early on. So yeah, no, we have themes that him and Ludwig do. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But I don't, he doesn't give me that music when I'm assembling. So I assemble with no music. Okay. Um, Interesting. Okay. And then when he comes on, as we're working and we get to a scene, he'll be like, Oh, let me play this thing that me and Ludwig did. What what do you think about this? Nice. Okay. Then we start temping it together. So he's keeping a piece of the puzzle like away from you to get your. Yes. That's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. It is brilliant. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. That's supposed to be amazing. Finally, um, advice for editors coming up now in the indie yeah. film world to get to, you know, to work with someone like Nolan. Yeah. I, I mean, I think my story and getting to work with Nolan is it's. I think it's great for young editors to hear in the sense that, yeah, I got this job with Nolan and I came from this indie world and I hadn't edited an action film and um, I hadn't worked in LA or Hollywood or, and he, um, he totally gave me this opportunity. It worked out. So I think, yeah, it's good for young editors to know that. I think it's good for editors to know that you can go outside your genre, you know, like Mm. a lot of editors get locked into genres and I think it was really good for me to do a horror movie and, um, Mm. do things that were out of my comfort zone. And I was scared to do those things. And at first I was like, Oh no, hire a horror editor. But you know, it's just, I think it's good as an editor to do a lot of different things and not be, not let people kind of lock you into something. Mm. Amazing. Listen, you've done an incredible job on Oppenheimer. Yes. It was stunningly edited. I thought it was fantastic. Oh, thank you. Tenet too, but we didn't really get a chance no, to talk about yeah. that. It was different. Yeah. But Oppenheimer, honestly, well done. Thank you guys Huge so much. Congrats. You're so fun yeah, to lovely talk chat. to you. Really nice I hope chat. I didn't ramble too no, much. No, no, no. You were the best. Really good chat. That was fantastic. Yeah. Really yeah. good. Thank you thank very you. much. Oh, that was Jennifer Lame. Oh, she was fantastic. Mm. Oh, what an editor she is. I'd love to work with her. She was so cool. So cool. Mm. So insightful. So interesting. What a pleasure it was to chat to her. What a treat. Absolute treat for you. And it hasn't finished yet, this treat of an Oppenheimer experience. Um, by the way, if you, you must have seen the film by now. It's incredible. It is out on Sky Movies. Go watch it uh, if you haven't. I'll rewatch it because now you've listened to these yeah. wonderful people talk about how yeah. they did it. Next up is the costume designer, Ellen Morogenik. I joined in this one a little bit late. Um, sometimes in these press... Oh yeah, you were... <laughs> Charles was going for a shit. Press rooms. No, no, I was just having a wee because we'd just yeah, done... Was, yeah. We'd done two in a row yep. and it was like it was quick back to back. And I going thought, for a oh, toilet and then, and then it was like, well, we got the guest in and all that primo, <laughs> primo host 
training camp kicked in uh, and I just started recording and, and, and went for and it. He started recording. And I, so I was like, was flushing the loo, washing my hands, thinking, oh, she's not in yet. And even if she is, it'll be just quick hellos and Dom will wait for me. No, Dom started. So I join in yeah. a few minutes into this and just go, hello. Hey, I say, I've saved our, I saved those precious minutes. <laughs> Indeed. And I have no idea what you talked about in those minutes, but I tried to join in as best as I could. Ellen was amazing though. And she was incredible. Some of her credits include she's work, been working in this industry for a long time from movies such as Cinderella back in the day uh, as well as How to Get Away with Murder, The Nick on TV, Bridgerton feature films include The Fame in 1980, the original Alan Parker's Fame, uh, The Flamingo Kid, Fatal Attraction, Wall Street, Cocktail Talk Radio, Black Rain, Jacob's Ladder, uh, Basic Instinct, Cliffhanger, Shadowlands, <laughs> Speed, <laughs> Showgirls, wow. Mulholland Drive, Twister, yeah, Face Off, Starship Troopers, One Night McCall's, Rat Race, Unfaithful, <laughs> Twisted. I'm missing some out here because there's so many. Cloverfield, Behind the Candelabra, Need for Speed, uh, By the Sea, Lucky Logan, The Great Showman, The Latest Cinderella in 2021, <laughs> um, and Kimmy, and now. Oppenheimer. This is the first time she's worked with Christopher Nolan. There's nothing more to say. Sit back, relax, enjoy Ellen Morojnik, myself and Dom. How, how are you doing? How's I'm London? doing for just fine in this lovely city. I love this city. Let's start at the beginning for you. How did you get involved with Oppenheimer? I got involved with the film when um, Chris and Emma were looking for a costume designer. Mm. And I went and met and it was a successful meeting. Good, yeah. And I um, was really thrilled to be able to accept the, the project. Well, what sort of goes into your process when you're planning a meet? I mean, it's obviously a, a, well, a pretty impressive me- sort of meeting to take. It's it's quite a meeting to take. However, mm. this was just a meeting. It was not a meeting about the film. Okay. It was just a meeting as if I'm meeting you. Yeah, okay. Um, it yeah. was just to see... Um, who the who I was, if we I guess connected, if we could uh, feel comfortable in the room, mm. and then it goes from there. So, what, what kind of conversation do you do you have to? Because I mean, it, it's important to be on the same page, isn't it? When you're when you're meeting someone that you're potentially going to collaborate with, that they've got to place a lot of trust in, in you, and it's about that rapport. I mean, yeah, it's just just it's very useful to get into the mindset of what you would do, say if if any of us had a, a meeting with, with Krista and Emma? You know, I think that everybody is different, mm. you know? And so I I kind of feel in a way that your CV is not necessarily... go. The C, your CV might get you through the door, mm. right? But when you're sitting across from who you're meeting with, in this case, Chris and Emma, you are very... Um, well, you're both in somewhat of a confident but vulnerable position. And Mm. so I think it's your instincts that lead the way. There's nothing that you can plan for. You must be yourself. Mm. And um, that's, that's how I do, you know, do it. This was an unusual um, meeting because when normally on previous projects, all through my career, when I would meet, I would have read the material yeah. before meeting. Mm. So this was literally like a go-see. I imagine like actors 
go and and meet on different projects and you just see if you can if you feel okay in the room together because the, the process the project is so big and there's so much trust at stake okay so not knowing each other you do actually your cv does count right well the person did so many projects and there are people that are familiar to the to the um to Chris and Emma who I worked with in in my case and in in I think that would be the same in in most positions but there is quite a lot of trust involved so you really must listen to your gut feelings i mean i've been on on meetings where they were quite renowned filmmakers where i couldn't wait to get out of the room really? yeah wow. i mean it doesn't it, it you go with your instinct mm. and you go with you know not everybody gets along that's yeah, perfectly true. fine yeah. um not everyone is is capable of doing their best work and that's that's fine and when you sit across from someone unless someone doesn't look you in the eye nor ask you any questions and really just talks about themselves. Yeah, it's not good. You go, good oh, I don't know if this is going to be a good collaboration. And in terms of like designing and and especially on Oppenheimer, do you from the very beginning think, okay, is this going to be a challenge? Is this going to be interesting for me? Not well, not necessarily with Oppenheimer, but any project that comes your way. Do you now think, okay, is this something I want to do? How how am I going to bring some of my uh, capabilities to this? Well, that's always the case. That's always the case. I mean, it was not just on Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, it was the, I only knew that it was Oppenheimer. Right. I knew nothing more. There was no material to read. I listened to actually um, the book, yeah. uh, American Prometheus, just a teeny bit. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a massive book. And so I didn't have time to actually go through the entire thing, but just to get a flavor. But that was not discussed at all. Mm. Not at all. In the case of Oppenheimer, you once the job is offered and you accept is the time you can read the script. Mm. It's not till then. So that is very, very unusual. I understand the point without a question. But in most cases, on most projects that I have been part of throughout my career, I've always read the material first mm -hmm. and then met on it. And it, you know, it, you don't have a full dialogue, you know, because the director or the producers are meeting other people. So can you imagine being, it's a lot of noise, yeah. you know, to have to go through being, being the person receiving all the information about how they'll deal with their, with their project and, and so on, so that do you look for, as a director or a producer, did they look for that one spark mm -hmm. that brings, you know, for the most part, a lot of people have a bunch of the same ideas basically going in without knowing. Right. So if you say, well, how do you feel about, um, what would you do? Well, mm. I never answered that question. I never, ever in any um, interview ever answered, what would I do? Because it really is, I want to know what you would do. Right. Hmm. What's your point of view? 
because it's not my film. Yeah. Yeah. It's you're, not you're, my film. You're a filter for that vision. I'm yeah. a collaborator yeah. on the mm -hmm. film. Yeah. And I'm here to help see your vision through. So I want to know how you in, are seeing it. And that will actually inform my opinion if I can collaborate. I'm not saying that I would actually be offered the project or not. Mm -hmm. Right. But just. That's somewhat how it works. Wow, that's it. that's so interesting. Uh, and let's say uh, you now have read the script and they do want to work together and they tell you your, the vision. Do you then go away and come up with your boards and your ideas and send that to them? Is there a, a mix? Well, usually that happens. Yeah. Usually happens in some way or another. Mm -hmm. There is the, the one wonderful thing about filmmaking is, um, and what I always loved about it is that there is there is no formula no formula. Everybody is different. Of course, when you work with the same people over and over again, you do have a bit of a shorthand, which is actually wonderful. But you don't necessarily, um, I never looked at any two films exactly alike. Okay. Mm. There's always two, even from the same director, there's always a different, there's a different input of sorts. And so you, you look to find that kernel and then i always do a deep dive after that what was the first process with this with oppenheimer what, yeah once you've once you've read the script um how does that initial sort of character building moment with you and christopher happen in in terms of like all of the characters do you go away and do all the research fresh without any input from him or does he have certain ideas that he starts sending over like a few images or mood boards or different things for, for certain well characters? everything is always in direct contact there's no sending over anything it's always been in direct contact so oh, that's okay. number one wow. um but that being said when um it took about I think two or three times that I read the script alone, you, you go to the office, you read the script. And I, the first time around, I made notes. I was very diligent and made notes. And then the second time around, I said, well, this is crazy. I can't make that many notes. And then the third time, it was just really to get the full breath of it, right? Without being so specific. What was wonderful is in that office where Ruth DeJong was working mm -hmm. as well, she had begun her work before, um, about five weeks before I came on. The entire office was filled with research on the walls, filled, uh, ceiling, floor to ceiling. Mm -hmm. Every single empty space was filled with research and it was divided into different groups. So whether it was Los Alamos or the Senate, et cetera, or just Oppie, it, it, it was, it was very, very well organized. And the space was not big. I would say it might've been, oh, I don't know. Let's say three of these rooms okay. about that if size. If anyone knows what a Corinthia hotel, uh, oh, hotel oh, room is. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I, I can't figure out what, whatever the space is. A, it's, a, it's like a sort of a, a small living room, isn't it? Yeah, it's, or it's a, a fam, family well, bedroom. Well, family yeah, bedroom. Yeah, yeah, family bedroom. There we that's go. Perfect. A, that's, a, that's a good definition, yeah. but yeah. maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah. However, um, it was not a large space. Yeah, yeah sure. It was not a large space. So what it felt like walking through those rooms was an exceptionally immersive experience, whereby all of these images just poured through me 
easily. Mm. Okay. Easily. And, and then you look and become more fascinated with one thing or another. I had done some research prior, um, to while I was reading, I didn't do research before reading and I did it after. And now I saw all of it. Okay. All of it presented. And it was a great, 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 um, introduction to all of what we were going to do. After that, we had a meeting. Mm -hmm. After that experience, um, Chris and Emma and myself had a meeting, a full meeting about Oppenheimer and and assorted other characters, but particularly Oppenheimer. And we laid out all the images of Oppenheimer that we could, I think all the images from from different decades. Mm -hmm. And what became clear to me as I saw that on a conference table was, and I've talked about this before, but it was clear to me Oppenheimer's silhouette was the same throughout the decades with slight variation depending on fabrication and and where he was. He was a very, very, very well put together gentleman. He had fine taste. He grew up as a privileged young man in New York. His father sold, uh, I don't know if he sold it. It might've been his company, a fabric company of very, very, very fine woolens that came from Europe Mm -hmm. into the United States in the beginning of the century. And so he was accustomed to very, very fine things. So that became clear through these photographs. They were all black and white, mind you. There was no color. Mm. Okay. That in itself leans towards, okay, so your imagination could be anything from A to Z. And we looked at it and and we agreed that the silhouette was quite similar throughout the time. And um, there was, he had a very particular style about him and everything seemed a bit more voluminous than maybe your average fellow. Right. That actually was somewhat similar to um, images that Chris had sent to Killian early on before when they first talked about Oppenheimer of David Bowie in the 1970s, yeah, American Life. And so that kind of exaggerated silhouette was very similar to Oppenheimer, was very cool. And... um, I think I remember in that that meeting, we talked about not only arriving at that conclusion, but we determined that he would only wear blue shirts mm-hmm. of different tones, which of course would suit Sil- uh, Killian perfectly, but it, it suited Oppenheimer as well. So, so, I mean, just going into the color as well, because you mentioned black and white photos, what was the discussion about the use of color and how you would approach that in the film? Um, there was not a conversation about color. Okay. All right. There was, there was a common, a common, uh, I think a, a conversation about textures, mm-hmm. quality, mm. feel, and our organicness to it. I don't ever really remember talking about color, except that even in photographs, you knew at that period of time what the colors would be. You know, they would be in a gray family, in a brown family. There were different contrasts that you would look at. And I think just from experience, I would guess 
yeah, sure. of what it would be. And then not take any, we were not, it was very clear on that meeting and that from that meeting onward, we would not making a documentary. This was the base foundation of what we were learning. And then we were to go to the next step. That being said, I think the color blue came in because there was one colorized photograph of, of Oppenheimer on Life magazine. Yeah, there was a Life I think magazine. it was a Life magazine, I think so. and it w we didn't know if it was colorized or not, but we thought it was colorized. Yeah, and it was kind of a tinted, and blue just was. It was just an automatic answer, you know. Everything. That, what was really quite exciting in this meeting, um, which doesn't happen all the time, was that the conversation and the ideas flowed so easily that it just gave you a platform to be able to now explore how you would create Oppenheimer. And then um, in that meeting, we didn't really talk about that, but we talked about Straws, who was Robert Downey, yeah. and, um, and looked at his images. Mm. And there were, his images were very, Chris related to, the image of him at the Senate hearing and what he was wearing very, very specifically. And he was very fond of that and that we knew we wanted to recreate in some particular way, inclusive of the yellow, well, its tie was yellow and it had horizontal stripe in it. And Chris insisted that it was yellow and I agreed. And um, we had it made. I mean, you couldn't necessarily find it, something yeah, of that yeah. nature at this time. So, but we used his sartorial, his sartorial style, if you will, as a springboard of how to design um, straws because he was quite, quite a dapper, pres presentational kind of gentleman. And we, he was bespoke head to toe. Mm -hmm. Everything that we had um, for him was made. Uh, Seventy-five percent of the movie was made. Nice. It mm. wasn't just vintagely yeah. sourced. Right. So we controlled quite a lot of trying to create a feeling of naturalness, mm -hmm. ease, authenticity, or reality, but with a bit of an original spin, mm. slight original spin on it. You know, so it, it those early conversations were just getting to know you, yeah. kind of things, and working quickly because okay. it was it was a very quick, uh, quick uptake when to you, then go. When you are designing, uh, generally, and it might be on Oppenheimer as well. Do you kind of do okay? You've discussed the colors, you've gone through it. Do you then come with maybe two or three options? Do you like you know when you're dressing the actors or when you think no about options, it? no options, no. I okay. mean, here's the deal with options. Mm. You know, a lot of people, options is like a keyword. Yeah, and I don't understand it. Cool. I don't understand it. Options can be in fabrication, in style, in fit. Okay, but I would call it that. Okay, so if I showed you, do you like this pinstripe, this pinstripe, this pinstripe? To me, that's an option. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. The thickness, the thinness, 
the flatness, mm. the texture, etc. Look at that. Yeah. The fit. Do you like a soft shoulder? Do you like a slimmer body? Do you like a longer jacket? How are we going to interpret the period and so on? That's an option, mm-hmm. right? Or a trouser, the same thing. A woman's dress, the same thing. Do you like the blue one or the white one? Mm. That's an option, Yes. right? Just to get a feel, it's just my, my shorthand to get a feel from how I'm going to communicate with the director, mm, right? right? What the like, because we don't know each other, right? Mm. So it's the likes and the dislikes of it, mm. right? And options is that I'm not going to go to a full design, right? right and do four or five suits or even two suits without knowing what those, that those initial op- mm. options are. It's all, it's all kind of related to the sketch of the character, right. sketching out the character so that we can formalize what, how we're going to go forward. That's fascinating because uh, what, because you've already, you've got everything there in the first place. You've already gone through the what you want with Chris or whoever the director is. So you don't need to go, well, on pinstripe or a non-pinstripe. You go, well, we're going pinstripe. So it's the thickness of the pinstripe, right? But you mm-hmm. don't know if you might have another idea in that initial process. Right. You might have another idea. You say, well, okay, the pinstripe is great, but look at this. This might be another way to look at the first the first time you see him, for example. And I, I suppose it's a balance, isn't it? Because you want to you want to have enough of your own ideas, but you also he, Christopher's got so such a massive job on a, on a film of this scale. He also wants people that he trusts to make certain decisions, or at least present, you know, do a lot of the legwork before it, it gets to him. Um, so it, it's finding that balance, isn't it, I suppose? Yes. Yeah. Well, you ju- what you just have to do is really kind of, I always find this is, this is the key. And I really do try to share it with a lot of other people, young people that are coming in, um, members of my team and so on. You have to listen. You really have to listen to what's being said. And you have to really know how to communicate as a result of what you're listening to. You just don't go off and be fancy free and blah, blah. But if you listen and really pay attention to what the director is after, what he's saying, what he's after, knowing what he's made before, right? If that's the case, you have a bit of a, a head start because you can be on the same page fairly quickly if you pay attention to to that to those conversations to what he's actually saying or how he's looking at things it's a whole kind of sensory that's how i look at it also a sensory way in which to begin your work Amazing. Uh, this has been fascinating. Yeah. Thank you so much for You're spending very time with us. Nice to, nice to meet you guys. Yeah. Appreciate it. And nice congratulations. Well. Well Thanks done. so very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. So there we have it. That was our Oppenheimer special. The girls were incredible. It was so good to get females on the podcast as well. Uh, I always want more. We always try and get more. So, wow, we had four in a row. And these four are Oscar winners, (laughs) Oscar nominees, BAFTA nominees, BAFTA winners. And I'm sure they will win again for Oppenheimer. 
they're already being nominated in so many categories I imagine for so mm. many other things that I haven't seen but check out the Oscars uh, soon because I'm sure they're going to be nominated the film's incredible and they did an incredible job next Tuesday actually we're doing another Friday episode we have J.A. Bayana's Society of the Snow episode coming out this Friday uh, there's so many at the moment because of the, the awards season he's obviously the director of The Impossible and The Orphanage and now Society of the Snow will be out on Netflix this week. So check that out as well. Is that with host Giles Alderson? It is with host Giles Alderson. And then on Tuesday, we have Boys in the Boat um, producer Whoa. Grant Hesloff with host Dom Lemoyne. Oh, yeah. Wow. wow, you're in for a treat. Listen, have a great week. If you have enjoyed this Oppenheimer special, honestly, please share it as much as you can and let other people know about this incredible episode as well. I d it, I'm saying incredible because of the guests, not because we're in any way incredible. I'm trying to be humble. Not that we're not. No. Not that we're not. <laughs> humble. Humbleness. <laughs> of us? If, if you could get the intro right next time, Dom, that'd be really helpful as yes. well. Yes, yes, yes. For now though, Dom, if you could get the outro right, do you want to do it? Try to do the outro? I'll, I'll try, yeah. Uh, and remember... <laughs> <laughs> Come on! <laughs> remember, if you rise to the top, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. You don't... Oh, wow, you just say it all and you miss bits. So, if you're lucky enough to do oh, well... If you're lucky enough to, to lucky, if you're lucky enough to do well, it is your duty to send the elevator up. back down. Uh, okay. Go on. If you're lucky enough to do well and... No, no. No. Anyway. If it, and remember, me? if you... Yeah, say it first and then I'll say it. If you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, just your duty yeah. to... Send the elevator back down. If you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. There we go. Yes. And in good, good, you know, passing the book host, you should pause at it's your duty too, and then I can fill in the blank. Okay. It is your duty too. What are you doing? <laughs> Just jumping in there. <laughs> Thank you for listening. You're amazing. Go out there and make your films on TV and go out there and make your massive epic. Take care, everyone. Bye. <laughs>